You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 534, a Beatles special, Paul McCartney at the BBC, Get Back on Disney Plus, and we choose the best Beatles tracks of all time. That's all coming up after Paul McCartney and My Brave Face. My very favourite Paul McCartney tracks. It could easily have come from Rubber Soul, such as its mm. delicious uh, derivative production. But it's a strange one. Written in an uneasy collaboration with Elvis Costello, it was mm. played at 
Paul played it at every live show from 1989 to July 24th, 1991. 116 mm. consecutive wow. performances. Then dropped it, never played it again. It never appears on compilations. Right. It's all most peculiar. Um, I love it. Number 25 on Billboard, number 18 in the UK from the summer of 1989. Paul McCartney and My Brave Face. Like you say, I really like that, but I'd completely forgotten it existed because you never hear it anywhere. It's it's yeah. never. I what happened was there some sort of major falling out that meant that it wasn't. I don't According know. According to Mark anyway. Lewinson, yes, there was mm. um, ah, right. a, a, a contretemps. Yes, and that's and, and in Mark we trust. So yes, but yeah. anyway, it's nice to hear that again. Thank you very much for your choice. Thanks for joining us for Parish Council. Episode 534. I'm Terence Stackham, and here's the Glyn Johns of the Parish Council. <laughs> it's Juliet Harris. I mean, I'm, I'm probably more Mal Evans in these glasses, <laughs> but still, I'm very, very pleased to, uh, yeah, here I am lashing together two four track recorders so that we can uh, go ahead and record the podcast in our underground studio. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, depending on where you are. Last Saturday, which in, in real time was the 20th of November 2021, mm. the BBC ran a special night dedicated to Paul yes. McCartney on BBC Two. Um, there were three threads to this. Firstly, a compilation of tracks Paul had either recorded at the BBC or had been taped by the BBC. Then a full concert recorded at the Cavern Club in, in 2018, which completely blew away my long-standing Paul McCartney theory of recent years. Mm. And finally, a rerun of an interview, perhaps more accurately, a conversation with mm. Idris Elba from December 2020. Uh, the first segment also it, it contains seemingly random moments, snippets of a conversation with Bob Mortimer. Mm. Um, both Bob and Paul, splendid, um, but there wasn't a great connection here, I felt. It had a similarly distant feel to it, as with the interview at the South Bank a couple of weeks ago with uh, Samira Ahmed. But Jules, mm. um, yeah, I got a bit emotional, to be honest. I got a bit distressed watching this compilation of Paul McCartney at the BBC, because obviously we saw Paul through the ages, in, yeah. including, by the way, his ill-advised moustache from 1976. Bless but for you. some reason... <laughs> I started getting troubled thinking about a world. I do this from time to time. I get troubled mm. thinking about a world without Paul McCartney in it. And it made me a bit tearful. I, I it, it really did. I hope you had a more cheerier approach to this compilation of clips from the BBC. I did. I very much enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed the conversations with him and Bob Mortimer. I would have liked to have seen them presented in a slightly more linear format. I think it might have been more in, it, it, you might have got a bit more from it, maybe, if you'd seen it all as one thing rather than them just yes. popping up in between, maybe. I just love Mortimer, Bob Mortimer. I think he's a lovely bloke. Mm. And I think he's got a very reassuring presence. So I, I did sense, I know that McCartney does sort of trot out anecdotes, but I don't know. I think that might have been, that might have been better value if they put it all together as one thing. But For anyway, sure. I enjoyed, I enjoyed watching this. Like you, I got a bit emotional in places. It wasn't presented in a linear format. So we went forwards and backwards through time. And what was quite interesting is we've spoken before on this podcast about the decline in McCartney's voice in, in mm. latter years. But what was interesting was... I, I sort of slightly altered my theory on that in that, yes, the later it uh, what seemed to be telling for me is that anything that began either with one nine or two zero 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 was fine voice wise. But it seems to have been literally the last decade or so that there's a sort of a notable change in quality. Having said that, there was also some bits from the 1970s in which he sounded a little bit ropey. So maybe to some extent it's it's just 
depending on the performance rather than a, than a sort of an, an overarching reason. I don't know, but it just goes to show, like all of these compilations, just how talented he is, really, just how many songs that he had that were all brilliant. And it always makes me laugh that whenever he appears at the BBC and does a concert, it's always like talked up as this like major event. And it's like, guys, there's loads. He's always at the BBC. <laughs> I think he possibly lives there. Like every, it's like 2000, it's all, oh, it never ever happens. 2007, 2010, 2013, 2000. 16 2018 2019 it's like like literally guys i love seeing him but you probably need to stop setting this as a once in a lifetime event because it's basically a once in a three-year event it would seem also goes to show as well the the performance of him on jules holland even if you're sir paul mccartney you're not you're not you're not a you know you're not you're not immune from the musical bindweed that is jules holland joining you on his moogie woogie piano no one is safe if you're on that program it doesn't matter if you go wrote 300 of the best songs of all time you will have boogie woogie on uh, from jules holland and you will learn to love it probably not as bizarre as the all-time low of jules holland boogie woogie and piano along with muse but um oh, yeah God. it did i know but um but yeah it's, it's so that's how i found that very entertaining i must admit but no i i was hmm. what i quite liked about it was it was very long wasn't it and usually they they those so-and-so at the bbc compilations have a little bit of a whiff of oh they're a really random length of time of about 40 minutes because they're designed specifically to fill holes in the BBC4 schedule and this wasn't this was a you know full 90 minutes and there was an awful lot of material there um I, I think my favorite performance weirdly because it was so incongruous but so good was my brave face that you picked mm. on Wogan in 1989 <laughs> and the audience they look like a bunch of yuppies don't they they're all very well turned out and all look very young and upwardly mobile there's not that many of them they were social distancing before it was cool i think there only seems to be about 25 people there but they're all having a great time dancing away but because they're all dressed sort of so smartly and they look so so yuppie-ish it's almost like oh here's the time that paul mccartney got a gig in a wine bar in clapham it's just a really odd atmosphere that i really like it for that so so no i enjoyed mccartney at the bbc i thought it was it was um also very much here for him so they had the glastonbury 2004 performance which mm. was excellent and they had him i think it was i can't remember what he was doing now it might have been let it be at the piano and he was wearing a, a shirt and a jumper and he did look like your granddad playing yes. songs at a christmas party and may, maybe that was deliberate and maybe that is the part of mccartney's appeal like you say the thought much like david attenborough for me we're going to approach a world where they're not in it anymore and that mm. that feels that feels almost impossibly sad because it's the soundtrack to everyone's life isn't it very much so and that's why i i got uh, as i say a bit distressed during it it certainly was a widespread of paul as a yes, solo artist but oh, once again those moronic captions that the bbc oh yes i was yeah yeah go on. on blocking out the bottom third of the screen with these sort of inane humorous takes um aimed at two-year-olds totally pointless and intrusive mm. and um, there were moments where they had things that were insightful but by and large they were pretty did you know this was one of the greatest songs ever yes i did go yes, away i'm exactly. trying to watch this yeah one thing I noticed that never changes over the years, any Paul McCartney performance, any glances or shots of the audience always show people in rapt adoration. Yes. And that must be amazing to be on the stage wherever you are and just yeah. look down and just see people just almost radiating love and warmth back to you. Must be. Yeah, it was a fascinating selection. Mull of Kintyre on Mike Yarwood Christmas show. <laughs> Very um, strange. Although say, I've, learned to, I've learned to like that over the years, actually. 
Jules Holland and, and a very young Stella and Mary in the audience. Mm. Um, Russell Harty show. But yes. my my favourite um, was a stunning Got to Get You Into My Life yes. from 1979. Overall, a terrific roundup, marred only by the um, dopey captions and uh, Paul's dodgy 1976 moustache. Yes, absolutely. He also had some bad hair at some yes. point. There was some very unusual, there was some very unfortunate mullet leanings. Yes, indeed. Now, next up on, on Paul at the BBC night was a recording of Paul McCartney and his band at the mm. Cavern Club in Liverpool in July 2018 um, with his in- incredible live band. And this destroyed my theory. I cannot work this out, Jules, uh, because I oh, agree with everything you said earlier about the 2000s and 2010s. My theory about Paul's voice started declining around 2010. Agree with you. Mm. And it's got worse and worse because why it was blown out of the water. This from 2018. Yes. Showed his voice to be great. I don't know if there was some production trickery, if it was just an incredible one off or my stroke hour theory has been totally wrong for years. Uh, I just don't know. but maybe that, it's that, more variable since 2010. Maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe you just had a really good night. And but also, that live band, Wicks, Wickens, Abe Laborio, Junior, Brian Ray, Rusty Anderson. Yeah, it's, strange, it's a strange fact that his live band of 20 years now have been together about twice as long as the Beatles. But, um, really strange, isn't it? No, Jules, really it, was a, it, it was not the original Cavern, but I found it rather moving seeing Paul there oh, yes. saw him standing there <laughs> ah see what you did there <laughs> just Absolutely. occurred to me yeah. oh very good no I enjoyed it very much and yeah like you say he was but I mean I think they do quite a lot with reverb now on his voice I think Maybe when you hear him singing sometimes I can you, you think mm, he's not that full they you know they've, they've tracked mm. this there is a little bit of trickery I think but no I thought he was again better hair than have been in recent year recent mm. years and I I thought he was great and and like you say everyone there seemed to seem to sort of really enjoy it and so did he 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 spoke well I thought between songs he he was interesting without sort of being too tedious it was a great set it was a great spread of songs they had sort of newer songs I really liked my valentine that he did by the way that he wrote for his his current wife I thought that was lovely and it was it was a lot of fun it was great and the thing is is that although we have sort of talked about his voice a, it's he still sounds like him, regardless of whether or not he sometimes struggles for power. He's still him, I think. Mm. And and also they can still really play. He can still really play. Oh, I can. mean, it's it's mm. and he's one of the best bass players of all time. Yeah, agreed. I love the fact that he's he's you know his bass playing is never never given enough due. I don't think he's so inventive and such a great bass player. And he sort of agreed to play the bass in the Beatles. He was like, oh, well, I'll do the bass then. Yes. It, was, it was such a it was such a sort of an accident that has turned out to be a, a brilliant, brilliant thing. I the, I thought it was really nice as well that you got a sense of how much the 175 people that were there and apparently they they announced it. I don't think it was on the day, but they announced hmm. it very near. And the tickets were only available for collection from the Echo office. So oh, there was this sort of run. That. Yeah, so there was this sort of run where where I'm trying to find the, the story in detail. But but there was this, they said it was sort of like Beatlemania, the sequel, in that people found out and yes. sort of dropped what they were doing and ran down to uh, to um, collect these tickets. And so it was almost for sort of real fans, or certainly for real sort of Liverpool fans anyway. Um it was so 
entertaining. Mm. It's uh, about 250 people are sort of crammed in to see it. And um, and it was it was uh, he sort of told the crowd that he was going back there was was sort of pretty, pretty amazing for him. Yeah. 175 lucky fans who had to race to collect the free tickets from the Echo Arena box office when the show was announced on Thursday morning. Tom Gilchrist, 28 from Liverpool, started waiting outside the cavern after hearing rumours of a gig, but then had to jump in a taxi when they heard that they had to get to the <laughs> arena. They'd joined others running to the box office and saw one woman faint in the process. Oh. It was like Beatlemania all over again, mm. he said. And it's just, and and there's, there's a bloke called Chris Clements that went and said it was one of the best things ever happened to him. And his girlfriend happened to be visiting from Connecticut. So she said, I can't believe that I saw them because I just happened to be there. There's something about the Beatles but mm. that, that gives you this once in a lifetime experience. I think I've spoken before about how I saw the Cirque du Soleil love show um, oh, when I happened yes. to be in Las Vegas. Yeah. And just this this idea that it, it's just so it's just so special i know that it might be a bit sort of exclusive that not everybody has a fair chance of going mm. but there's something and, and like going around the going around abbey road in the summer there's something about it because it's so rare it's just such a special thing so so i'm envious of the people that were in the cavern yeah. and to be honest maybe if you're watching mccartney sing live and he doesn't always hit all the notes like you say the shots of people in the crowd is, is it that important? Because people are just really Absolutely. pleased to be there and to see him doing those songs. I mean, it's, you know, when I saw Brian Wilson do Pet Sounds, he didn't hit every note, and it was still a really emotional experience mm. being with him. So the same applies, I think. One thing that came through this live at the Cavern and, and the later bit with Idris Elba is that Paul McCartney is the most relaxed man in the world. He is, isn't he? Nothing, Nothing seems to really him. trouble him very Nothing much. Nothing at all. Always noticeable, um, though, um, is that, well, like at the Cavern, he tells little anecdotes, sometimes against himself. But, yes. you know, make no mistake... Paul is very much in charge. You know, he's, he's, yes. he's, he's always um, the, the master of ceremonies. He's always the one who makes the decision. This was a tremendous performance. The fact that Paul was listed as executive producer made me wonder if there'd been any vocal jiggery pokey. Mm. But it was great, nevertheless. Some unusual song choices, as you mentioned. We had Obladi and uh, Hi, 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 and In yes. Spite of All the Danger. And also it featured um, photography I saw in the credits by Sonny McCartney, who is... Uh, the son of Paul's brother, Michael, his nephew. Oh, great. Hmm. It's a great gig. I, I love watching this. Um, finally, with Paul at the BBC night, we had a rerun that oh, I hadn't seen it before. I saw a, it when it was on. Ah, uh, right. It's a conversation with Idris Elba filmed a year ago, uh, December 2020. Had a bit of a focus on the McCartney 3 album, which had released the day yes. before. But also it had a wider remit. Idris himself. I thought, like so many others, confessed he was overwhelmed because it's Paul McCartney. And Paul is always aware of this. He, he's always very kind. Very and kind, to yes, absolutely. Calm the interviewer down always, it seems to me. But <laughs> he, he never quite lets the notion slip away that, yes, I'm Paul McCartney. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, was there anything new from this Idris Elba get-together, Jules, do you think? No, I don't think so. I have to say, I found this deeply irritating at the time, and I, I find it slightly irritating again now. And, yeah, I get that I would probably be the same as Idris, but I bless him. I'm sure I, I have to preface, preface this by saying I'm sure Idris Elba is a very nice man, mm. but I just I found parts of this really cringy, actually, I must admit, particularly yeah. the him playing the guitar oh, and singing Lord. to Paul McCartney. I just, yeah. I, I watched most of that 
that through my fingers, I must admit. I'm really pleased for Idris that he met Paul McCartney, but I didn't get a lot from it other than the fact that, that Idris was really pleased to meet Paul McCartney and Paul McCartney was quite kind to him, really. I felt like we were watching an encounter with a fan. I didn't really yes. feel like we were watching anything particularly insightful in way of an interview. And that's I don't mean to sound as mean as I am, really, but I think having watched... It was unfortunate as well that they sequenced this in the order they did in this this evening of programmes because it was so it looked so minor compared to the other two things that we'd seen really. I know it's a different thing, but I'd much rather have watched Paul and Bob Mortimer really, who could at least sort of hold on to himself a bit better. I think so. I you know I I feel bad criticising this because Idris Elba was clearly so pleased to be there and it was a promotional thing for McCartney through I suppose, but I didn't get a lot from it really. It's often difficult for Paul to come up with some brand new story yes. for an interview. And, and so um, we he told Idris Elba stories that we then found were duplicated in the Bob Mortimer conversation. Yeah, it's, always it's, interesting, yeah. though, to hear of the influences musically of his father, Little Richard yeah, and true. Motown. And um, I also found it curious that he named Here, There and Everywhere as his favourite of the songs he's yes, written. Because that's I was really just, interesting. Mm. I, I found that uh, quite touching. I assumed he'd written that for Jane Asher. So, um don't know yes. about that. Always, although, always though, he, he keeps himself to himself somewhat. But I yes. did the, 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 nothing to do with Idris Elba. But I found it quite um, moving that Paul's eyes misted over talking about his mum and that dream yes. in which he appeared, which resulted yeah. in him writing "Let It Be." But he did. Yeah. He held himself back. Yeah, you know, he, he did. didn't ever raise his fingers to his eyes or get a tissue no, out. He, he held was, back. He was. He yeah, was. I, yeah. Absolutely. You were talking about being a fan. I, I, there was something I noticed. Uh, Idris Elba being a fan. Um, Twice Idris Elba said he, to Paul, he's that he Idris is great mates with Stella McCartney. But each mm. time Paul gave the faintest of little nods, didn't reply, and kept a blank face. And mm. so he'll give you so much, but he's always aware of where his boundaries are, yes, and he always exactly. knows. You know, look, I'm Paul McCartney, so he wasn't yes. going to go down that road and saying, "Oh, you know Stella." Well, where you yeah, know that, what, that matey road? Yeah. yeah, not not a chance. Coming next, the day has dawned. Peter it's Jackson, here. Get happy back Christmas on <laughs> Disney Plus. Um, so we'll be talking about Peter Jackson's Get Back on Disney Plus. That's right after. The Beatles. Because you're sweet and lovely girl, I love you. Because you're sweet and lovely girl, it's true. I love you more. James got nothing on this, baby. 
track this week huge if true um that is i love that i I love the charm of that i think it's it could be very throwaway but i think it's just very sweet and very fun and i think it's I think it's it's it was quite a telling um sort of a bit in the in the whole let but let it be get back story which of course we'll mm. talk about more in a minute that actually in amongst all the sort of chaos that was erupting and how it was all sort of falling apart there was just this really sweet little song that George Harrison had written as a love song to to Patty Boyd and which they all seemed to quite like and they just sort of skiffle along to it really and I I think that is that it's underrated it always it might not be one of their epics but it always makes me happy to hear it that is for you blue by the beatles from let it be yeah it's a bit unusual for george at this time because mm. it's quite happy-go-lucky at a period when he often seemed to have the weight of the universe on his shoulders but yes it's a, it's a great track i remember when the let it be album came out in 1970 mm. I, I received the special edition with the book for mm. my 15th birthday that summer and, and that's, like that's most, mega that's so exciting it, what it was it, oh it was i mean I, I spent the whole summer just flicking through that book listening yeah, to the album i think but like most of the music papers that time i did find the album a bit lightweight mm. um the silly kind of leninisms crowbarred between yes. tracks and the, the phil Spector strings and choirs it made it feel a little sort of middle of the road and not so mm. beatly of course there was some lovely moments particularly the harmonies on two of us that sort of thing but yes. overall a bit disappointing and as an early memory, that feeling has never quite lifted itself from the album and mm. time in Beatle Life. Similarly, the movie uh, Let It Be, uh, released at the time, felt a bit aimless, a bit depressing mm. and moody. That may have been influenced by the knowledge at the time that this was the greatest group disintegrating. And, and to me, a very young and innocent boy, it, it, it felt wrong and was all quite distressing. Now here we are 50 years later and director Peter Jackson has spent four years restoring the original film work, edited 60 hours of film footage, 150 hours of audio into three lengthy episodes, which mm. are on the Disney Plus channel this week. Jules, um, has Peter Jackson brought a new version, not only of the movie, but also a new version of our understanding of January 1969 with the Beatles? I think he has actually, simply because there is so much here. There's there's just it, there's so much here, and I, it never sort of dragged for me. Oh, you would think no. that that several three-hour films in a row would drag. I got to the point where uh, my television threatened to switch itself off at one point <laughs> because I'd been static in front of it for so long. It's white. It's when like when Netflix and this wasn't on Netflix. When you've been watching things on Netflix for a yes. very long time or binge watching lots of things, and it says the slightly judgmental. Are you still watching this? Yeah. And it, as it said to me once, are you still watching SpongeBob's Square Pants? To which I replied, <laughs> yes, and I don't much care if 
your tone, Netflix. So I had a, I had a moment where my television threatened to go on strike because it was possibly sick of showing me get back in in, in a complete row. Um, I, I loved your comment online on social media that by the end of it you felt like you were actually in the Beatles. Mm, it was I astonishingly did. intimate because because you it just was like you were sat in the rehearsal room with them. It, it threw a great light, I think, for me. And I, th- I really think my Beatle knowledge is reasonably good, but it threw a great light to me onto the interpersonal relationships mm. between all of them, mm. which, and there wasn't these kind of, as you said, the idiotic captions. There wasn't this sort of, um, you know, the narration, the narration, no. you know, silly narration or anything. You can no make talking heads judgments. either. No, exactly. And the, and the judgments that I came to, of course, having said this, they managed to have eight hours of footage, yet still with elephants in the room. It is never discussed that that John Lennon is on heroin for most of the first film. And but when you know that, it explains why he's so disengaged for quite a lot of that, really. Although, yes, Paul McCartney is extremely bossy for quite a lot of that episode. And you can kind of see why George Harrison sort of threw one a bit equally. Then nothing would have happened without him. It was it was, you know, it was him that was trying to keep the keep the thing going at that point. I found it so interesting that firstly, everybody loved Ringo. Ringo just seemed to be this sort of constant presence that never seemed to sort of fall out with anyone really he was he was the one that that everyone seemed to like and was a reassuring steady present there's a lovely bit where Linda McCartney says that he's the person that she feels the most relaxed around of all of the the sort of people which is lovely and when sort of spoiler alert but um, I think everyone sort of knows anyway the way that George Harrison's departure is dealt with is one of the greatest cliffhangers I think I've ever seen at the end of the first episode where they're going to and the way in which in which he leaves there is no massive row he just says oh I'm leaving I'll see you down the clubs lads and and goes and at one point they go are we still rolling? Are they still rolling? And then they go cut, at which point <laughs> the film just stops. And then they explain, you know, there's a picture of that and they go, oh, they all go to meet at Ringo's house. The meeting did not go well. End of part one. It's like, what a cliffhanger. That was, that was, you know, I'd cancelled all my plans to stay on for the, for the second episode at that point. But um, that was, that was really sort of lovely. I thought that, that Ringo seems to be the one that everyone sort of likes. And what was so strange was that, I hadn't realised the extent to which the relationship between Paul McCartney and George Harrison had disintegrated. I mean, had completely disintegrated. They can barely talk to each other at some points. And it's it's really, when I looked it up afterwards, Paul McCartney had been George Harrison's best man in 1966. It was, it seemed to be so almost sort of how things came to a head. There's a a compelling scene where they have a, a, a row that never be quite becomes a row over a guitar arrangement. And a guitar part. And yet the weird thing is, is that John Lennon is often quite dismissive of George Harrison's, George Harrison's kind of contributions. Yet George and Paul are the first to say about each other's things. Oh, I really like that. That's really good. And I just found that really interesting that they really like each other's professional work. Yet they don't they don't seem to be able to work together on a personal level at that point. I thought it was it was interesting that the, the highlight for me was you know what once they decide they don't want to you know the, the the constant the first the first episode the constant interjections of michael the director about how are we going to do this concert if i'd been one of the beatles partners there i would have gone look for god's sake will you just go away you just keep chipping in all yeah. the time they clearly don't want to do this paul doesn't want to leave the country ringo will do whatever anybody tells him to john lennon is clearly unwell and and it's just it's it's, it's you know it's it's not going to work yet once they finally realize they're not going to do that and they go into the studio 
when Billy Preston comes in, it's like the sun coming out. He just turns up and all of a sudden you realise how important he is to that part of their story because they, they just all of a sudden they just want him with them. And, and, and Paul says, oh, you've given us a lift bill. And they just. It's, it's so I just I loved that the way that he just turned up and was delighted to be there and all of a sudden Lennon is more engaged again and I, I loved living through this Terence I loved living the story with them I thought it was so wonderful I thought it was a clever touch that Peter Jackson's opening scene of the of the overall thing mm. echoed the original with the famous yes. like Mal Evans opening shot as he sets up yes. the gear in that awful soulless warehouse of a room in so it was a hanger wasn't it it was awful <laughs> I don't think these three Peter Jackson films will convert anyone. And I think that's not their purpose. You do need to be a deep Beatles fan to watch eight hours. Um, There are some wonderful vignettes of scenes um, talking about the, oh yeah, talking about when they're talking about the huge concert that never takes place. And you say Ringo doesn't want to go abroad. They say, um, Paul doesn't either. I don't think Paul says I'm not going anywhere. And they say, oh, Ringo doesn't want to go abroad. And and uh, Paul says, okay, let's get Jimmy Nickel. And um, out oh. of context, that sounds terrible. It was said with humour and tongue mm. in cheek. And I mean, that's the flavour of much of the footage. I thought um, Paul says, um, we're heading for divorce. John says, but who'd have the children? Yeah. Paul says, Dick James. His appearance was a brilliant pantomime oh, villain dear, moment, oh, wasn't dear, it? Yeah. That was horrendous. It did prove how much of a void was left by the death of their yes. manager. Paul says, um, we've been negative since Mr. Epstein passed away. And in discussion, they all refer to Mr. Epstein. Yes, nobody I noticed says that. Brian. Brian, no, and, I noticed that. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I don't know, Jules, I felt this was another point that we saw quite early that the big show they were planning for later in the month was never going to happen. Um, they didn't have enough songs and were frantically looking back to yes. abandoned songs from the 1950s. But generally, without um, having a father figure, Mr. Epstein yeah. there, generally there was no direction and there was way too much mucking about. Absolutely, it all fell on McCartney to try, and mm. and, and then it big and and they I thought it was really interesting that they actually talked about it quite a lot as well. Mm. And of course, you know, for all that Michael annoyed me, uh, when they secretly tape McLennan and McCartney's conversation over lunch, don't they? And that is so revealing. Where what's I what I found sort of heartwarming about this was there's always a sort of a telling of you know Lennon McCartney falling out. And it wasn't like they ever really fell out because they were having quite a a difficult conversation. Yeah, it wasn't a row. It was a difficult conversation they were managing to have. And I was rather warmed by the fact that that we were always sort of, you know, told the story of all the Beatles resenting Yoko Ono being there all the time and that sort mm. of thing. But there's a scene. So after George has gone, um, they end up firstly the reliability of Ringo when they say oh you know no one's here yet only one member has arrived for filming after the after the meeting you know it's going to be Ringo that walks mm. in and it is he turns up and then Paul and Linda turn up and then I th- then and you know they're sort of sat there and John Lennon is still in bed at this point so they're sort of all, all kind of sat there chatting and for all of you know Paul McCartney being accused of being bossy and being controlling for all his faults, he is the one that is extremely laid back about Yoko Ono being there and is mm. really kind of quite defensive. And what the other elephant in the room that isn't mentioned is that, of course, John and Yoko had not too long before filming a soft miscarriage. And when you yes. know that, you right. get a better idea of why Yoko is there all the time. And I think a lot of the anti-Yoko 
male critics don't always don't always take that into account it was but only I, I found, six weeks before in the exactly, november exactly and the January, i yeah. found i found that very sort of warming in a way that that paul mccartney was mm. and 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 you saw that sort of laid back side of him that we see in him now that he's just like well you know if if, if it's not going to happen again then he's 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 sort of quite calm in the face of what appears to be things collapsing and 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 like you say there's the the, the conversation that they have whether or not the Beatles are the Beatles or whether they're just a band that they can hook other people into. Lennon says at one point, well, if George doesn't come back by Tuesday, we'll just get clapped in. <laughs> and he's just, <laughs> and then they, you know, it was, I think that is so telling. I'm not sure ethically they should have hid that microphone in that flower pot when they, when they, when they, they went no. to lunch, but it was, it was, it, it's fascinating, isn't it? And, and it's got all the aspects of the Beatles story in there. So you see magic Alex popping up. And of course, we all know if you if you're a Beatles fan, you know that it's going to end in disaster. Or when they say, "Oh, Glyn and and George Harrison are going to check out the studio that Alex has built for them," uh, they are not pleased with what they find. And then all of a sudden, it becomes a frantic scramble. The nearest thing they have to a father figure throughout this period is George Martin, actually, mm-hmm. and he's the one that becomes the he gets the the equipment in that they then set up. Um, sort of I, I when you learn about how certain people were treated afterwards I, I had to say I lost a little when you read it into it afterwards mm. you do think I do think Glyn Johns was treated ill I think he should have been given more Great. credit for 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 what he did and also I I am sorry that none of the, the Beatles deigned themselves to go to Mal Evans's funeral I That's, think that was, his that was treatment poor. and his um, yes. salary, his you know his wages, whatever you want to call it, were you know not that doesn't show the Beatles in the best light. They really no. did rather use Mel Evans. Well, that having said that, interestingly, if you you know depending on whose account you read, Alan Klein, who you know comes out of this mm. as the shark that he is, I think it was apparently him that was critical to John Lennon of you know Aspinall and, and and Evans you know sort of you know living like kings off the Beatles and actually Lennon bought that and it was the protest of the mm. other three when Evans was fired that brought him back in so so yeah it's it's a shame because could you get the impression that they're really quite important to the Beatles at this point they're mm. always sort of there um they I my their tea and toast consumption that seems to be without end doesn't it really, they really every to- the yeah toast, didn't they? yeah absolutely and there's always someone bringing them in to sort of do things and something else I noticed and again you know I don't know if this was planned or not but you know they all sort of roll into the studio and start playing together what was very telling was uh, Ringo's style dressed sort of so differently but the, the other three come in and they're all wearing green but in slightly different ways it's like they were they still had that bond even if it was it would really and there were parts which as you say are quite sad because when they have the conversation they have a long conversation in in the first episode about how they're sort of a bit directionless they know that it's coming to an end i think and that's what's so that's what's so poignant about it we all know that this is perhaps the last knockings and but you know, there's some lovely moments, particularly in the second episode where they're they're doing um they're, they're they're sort of playing together, and John Lennon is saying, actually, I'm quite enjoying just being a a guitarist, really. Mm. Um, when they do when they're doing Get Back, and he's uh he's sort of doing a solo and stuff, and he sort of says, I'm just you know I don't want to sing that bit, I'm just enjoying, and you get the impression that they've actually for the first time in ages just really like playing together. George Harrison is so enthusiastic about the beginning bit of Get Back. 
And, uh, you know, McCartney's talked before about how it's deliberately called Get Back to once you, where you once belong, because they're sort of trying to revisit the early parts of their career. Like you say, lots of the the one after 909, the stuff that they sort of mm. dig up in the beginning of their career. It's like they're coming full circle, really. And you you really get that impression, I think, from the from the documentary. There's some fascinating little snapshots. It's, it's interesting. It was interesting to pick up on the madness of Magic Alex, as you say. When, oh, they, when yeah. they found that, I, I even jotted it down that when they moved to Savile Row, George Martin politely proposes. He says, "Well, I think we should get an eight-track we can rely on." Um, yes. Yeah, thoroughly absorbing. So diplomatic as, well. as always, George Very Martin. Nice. But yes. Really absorbing to see the the building blocks, Paul creating Get Back and the Long and yes. Winding Road as we watched on. You know, you can see it was like the idea and then he sort of thrums his bass and he gets a yes. few lines and he builds. Some of the broader feeling, feelings, I totally agree with you. I found Michael Lindsay Hogg a bit annoying with his uh, insights. I just wanted and, to swat him life. away. He was just mm. there all the time. And it's like, go away, for goodness Pe- sake. Peculiar moment. Peter Sellers arrived uh, to yes, check out the set odd. for The Magic Christian, which they were filming in that room immediately yes. after. But he stayed for five minutes before excusing himself. And I, I just got the impression it may have been because John was out of his head particularly mm. on that day and i think maybe he was a bit embarrassed another thing i noticed fascinating that as late as 1969 all of them referred to the old showbiz terms of numbers instead of shows yeah instead of songs sorry well, let's do it we, we you know we've got to get a few more numbers instead yeah. of saying we need some songs and shows instead of gigs you know so, well, let's yeah. do a show they didn't say gigs um yeah i wonder what did you make of that secret placement of the microphone in a flower pot to record that private conversation between john and paul when george left temporarily i hadn't heard of that before and i'm not i was as i was listening to it i felt that this is this is very unethical i shouldn't yes. be listening to this absolutely but then having said that it did offer a huge insight i thought and it, that this is the worst thing isn't it you know it's 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 really unethical and i was really interested so so it's yeah, hard to, it did feel like we were we were overhearing you know we, we were overhearing something we shouldn't and and but i couldn't fast forward over it because it was really telling and it oh, offered a yes, huge it offered a huge it offered a huge sort of insight to the thing i just go back to your point you made about the opening sequence which i thought was mm. really good um it really made me laugh out loud now i love the kind of insight into george where they said, um, where they had the sort of the disaster that was their trip to Manila, and uh, and they said, oh, you know, you you won't want to go back to Manila. And George just said, well, I never really wanted to go in the first place, and I found that so entertaining. I mean, it's it's there's so much to this. There's so many different threads that you can you can pick out of it. Like you say, it's really interesting. One thing I did found interesting, and I probably should have either did know this or ought to have known it, was when they're rehearsing Get Back. All of the anti Enoch Powell stuff and the kind mm. of the the way that it was originally a sort of a a kind of a, a sort of a almost a kind of a pro immigration anthem. I found that really interesting. I love mm. Get Back anyway as a tune. But you thought, wow, if they'd have done it like that, that would have been really bold, wouldn't it? And really, really brave. I found that really interesting to to sit and watch that. I thought it was really good. And um I love the um, just the fact that you see the the constant feedback whine when they first when they first go to Savile Row and it is just like any old band sat in a room when you're all going where's that buzzing coming from is that you no I think it's I think it's not me is it oh no I think it's from over there I just I love the kind of the mundane bits as well like that where you kind of saw them all um you saw them all mucking around 
There, there, I think there are two catalysts for a change to positivity, um, which particularly comes out in the third episode, the move to Savile Row and yes. the arrival of Billy Preston. Yes, they're um, so pleased to see him, aren't they? Yeah, That's it's wonderful. So lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Lovely. And, uh, you know, he, he becomes more and more a part of it over the next few days. Uh, a telling moment. Paul goes off to a business meeting while John persuades George of the merits of Alan Klein and unfortunately starts mm. describing him as a sort of messiah. Yes. Um, and then oddly, at the end of this conversation, shows off this stylophone he's recently acquired. He That's says, oh, very I, strange. I saw it, I saw it on TV. Um, I thought the breakout stars of the whole thing, uh, Glyn Johns, as you yes. mentioned, clearly, clearly far more influential and involved than we ever thought before. Yes. He really produces the thing. Uh, George Martin is more a sort of executive overseeing yes. producer, but Glyn Johns is, does all the... He's the one that's there pushing, all the time, yeah, isn't absolutely. he? Yeah. Mel Evans, who comes across as a lovely gentle giant, Billy Preston, um, Linda's uh, daughter Heather, who, who stars in the last episode, and yeah. um, ever cheery Ringo. I felt sorry for the poor coppers from Savile Row Police Station yes. sent to get the noise stopped. And there's you get Jimmy the doorman, Debbie the receptionist, and Mel Evans all trying to delaying tactics to stop them getting <laughs> onto the roof. Um, and by Jiminy, it was cold up there in January '69. But I thought the use of um, a Woodstock-style split screen was clever for the rooftop mm. shops, so that we could also see and hear the reaction from people down the street. But overall, Jules, I loved all of this. Like eight hours, I loved every second, and I could watch a couple of hours of new Beatle footage every day. I think I probably could as well. And someone, someone, I can't remember who now, so apologies for not crediting, but someone said on Twitter, so presumably Peter Jackson next week will have eight hours of me on me to watch about Abbey Road. I guess that's going to happen, oh, isn't it? So, lovely, so yeah. yeah, it's no, absolutely. I very much, I enjoyed being in the Beatles for a few hours. I thought it was great. Coming next, we'll be revealing uh, the top Beatles tracks of all time just to help you out in case you know you, you didn't know what they were um, unlike terence i i'm just going to say these are my favorites because i don't feel that my taste is everyone's taste but who knows maybe we'll differ on that as well well that's right after one of my choices it's the beatles and penny lane penny lane there is a barber showing photographs Behind his back, and the banker never wears a Mac in the pouring 
how many times I hear it this remains one of the greatest pop songs mm. ever recorded um, acknowledged by George Martin as a, a huge mistake not holding it back for Sergeant Pepper yes um, for me it absolutely plants the notion of the excitement of the mid-1960s in terms of music fashion the arts I remember when it was released it had a sort of supercharged running through it it leapt out of the radio or the record player number two in the uk number one in the states from 1967 the beatles and penny lane the beatles at their best in that they just make a universe don't they i can picture all of the people that they're singing about i know exactly where they are i know exactly what is happening and it's so exuberant isn't it as well it really is it's everything that I like in life in different spheres. It's the art of the possible. And when I listen to this, I do feel like there is a world out there and anything is possible. And it's great. That's so true. I mean, Penny Lane in my ears and in my eyes. It's one of my top five Beatles songs of all time. Strongest mm. bass line in Beatles history to that point. But yes, you're so right. It's the same in the same way as Eleanor Rigby. It manages in this case in three minutes and three seconds to narrate almost a play, a vision of a, yes. of a snapshot of life. And of course, married to the uplifting melody, it's simply Paul at his peak. It is. So we're going to reveal our top five Beatles tracks mm. for time from five from each of us. In, in Juliet's case, of course, as I say, I'll have to tell her whether she's chosen wisely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if, if if listeners, you see something roll past you on the floor, those are my eyes. So if you'd be kind enough to pick them up and let me let me have them back, that would be great. Let's do a couple at a, a time. Okay. So what are your first um, what are your first choices, Jules? OK, then. Well, as you've already mentioned it, I will yeah. I will say that my and these are in no particular order, by the no, way, and to be honest, too, if yeah. you ask me this next week, I might give you different choices <laughs> it's it's really strange isn't it I'm not quite you know I, I, I could pick if you picked like you know there's about 200 Beatles songs where if you picked if you, if I picked any five if I just stuck a pin in I would probably say yeah those are my favorite five so to be honest I'm not as welded to these lists as a lot of people are because mm. my list might be different next week and the chances are the same, I'll then really, think yeah. that I'll think that all of your songs are as good as mine I think that you've picked <laughs> because they're Beatles songs aren't exactly. they so of course they're going to be good so my first choice is Eleanor Rigby for the reasons that you that you perfectly say that I, I love the Beatles when they're telling you a short story. And also, I think the Beatles are really underrated. You know, they're seen as lovable mop tops, I suppose, or, you know, or rockers in the case of Let It Be. Um, they're really devastating. You, you can forget how devastating the Beatles can be in the stories that they're telling you. Uh, 
in a very economical way as well. Eleanor Rigby is really short and not one word is wasted. I mean, the lines that, that kind of flow in one after another it's so gothic, Eleanor Rigby. You can picture the picture the church where they are and how bleak it is and how no one's there and it's all slightly overgrown. And the string arrangement is just knockout, I think, on this. It's 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 so imposing. And I think it is such a powerful, sad story, and it doesn't pull its punches not everything it's not going to be all right you know and that's and that's that's and and people don't associate the Beatles with that level of darkness but I do think this is their gothic peak as far as their sort of sad stories were concerned it's um yeah it's another of Paul's great story songs Mm. uh, like Penny Lane and She's Leaving Home and uh, an incredible narrative as you say two minutes eight seconds yeah yeah, there's an an entire uh, life is spelled out in the. It doesn't need time. to be longer. There is no yeah. solo. There is no middle eight. It's it's just they tell you what needs to be told and then they go. What's your next one? In a similar vein. So so that I there are lots of this sort of song that I could have picked. In terms of I'll tell you about the ones. That here's what you could have won. Mm. Norwegian Wood is always is also excellent in its mm. tale of a story that then has a rather sort of suddenly sudden sudden ending really. Um, also, she's leaving home. It was it hurt to left to leave that out. I must admit, but instead I've gone for this, which is rather more undersung, I think. But I think this is again very devastating for no one. Which I I think is there's that beautiful brass solo near the end. It's so restrained, yet it is so is so matter of fact and so clear eyed in in its description of the of the breakup of a relationship. I, I think it's perfect. And again, it's short and, short and sweet. And by sweet, I mean quite bitter in places. But um, I love this. I, and I think that it's never appreciated as that sort of it gets overshadowed by things like she's leaving home. But I'm picking for no one because I, I want it appreciated. I think it's a great choice. And it's I find always find it a bit strange because it's two years before. Uh, Francie Schwartz and Jane Asher coming home yes. and finding um, so it's two years before that and, and Paul already seems to be documenting sort of fractures in the mm. relationship with Jane Asher and it's an, another interesting point of course with for no one is there's no John or George on it it's just uh, Paul Ringo and um, oh the French horn player oh Alan, Alan Sybil Alan yeah. Sybil that's and it it's, yeah. and it's uh, it's it's like you say it's and again it's two minutes and one second so it's it's you know it, it really is sort of fat free taken from Revolver and again it gets overshadowed even amongst the Revolver mm. as well which is appreciated as a as an album yes there's there's something about it like you say that is that is weirdly foreshadowing what went to ha- what went on to happen but um yeah I, I just don't think it's ever given the appreciation it should I've picked Rain, which was tucked away on the B-side mm, paperback choice. writer, and it, it deserved better. Um, the, I, I suppose it reflects the sheer volume of genius running through Paul and John at the time that it could almost be given away to a B-side because they'd a yes. torrent of great songs at that time. And from 1966, it's almost the beginning of the psychedelic era of their work. Mm. And recorded in the same month as Tomorrow Never Knows, to which it's a close uh, relative. Uh, wonderful work from Ringo on it. The experimentation of backward tapes begins here, and mm. Lennon managing to combine a sort of, what would you say, a laconic edge. I think we think we use the word laconic earlier. Laconic yes. edge to confident vocals. Really love it. 
No, um, and I agree. I, him, it just goes to show that McCartney and and and, and Ringo Starr, what a bass, you know, what a rhythm section. I my friend used to have a T-shirt that had drum and bass written on the top of it, and then a photo of Paul McCartney and Ringo mm. Starr. And I think the two of them as a combo on that on that song is it's so inventive, isn't it? You could just isolate the bass and drum track, and it would still be incredible. Completely agree. In a completely different vein, I've picked I Should Have Known Better, mm. which was recorded only two years earlier, but it's from a different Beatles world, yeah. really. It's another it Lennon song. It's the first full-length song featured in the movie A Hard Day's Night, yeah. which had such an impact on me when I saw it at the cinema mm. as a very young boy in 64. Both the movie and the album uh, cemented the fact that the Beatles were not just uh, not just another guitar band, as, as Decker referred to them and they were yeah. they were here to stay um bizarrely in the movie paul mimes the vocal even mm. though it's um, not him singing it but a great song and one of their best yeah agreed it's got a lovely tune what's next for, for you jules well we will flip over your reign uh-huh. and i'm going to pick paperback writer again I, I i've vacillated between the two it was it was really close possibly one of the greatest ever double a single releases um just in, incredible i think and i love paperback writer i mean i could easily pick rain instead but the, what i love about paperback writer is how relentless it is it's another story song and I really like that. And again, we've sort of met these people, haven't we? Mm. Um, the you know the, the the whole family of the of the man and the clinging wife that doesn't understand, and his sons working for the Daily Mail. And it's 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 relentless. These kind of people and stories that are thrown at us. And the the rhythm track is so good. It's such a great. I can't even describe it as a rocker because there's more to it than that. But, you know, attributed with them sort of being, you know, switched on to different sort of drugs they were taking. But it's 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 such a fun song. I I never, ever want it to finish when I listen to it. It's it's just it's so full of energy. It's so alive. There's the silliness of them singing Frere Jacca as the backing vocals. Yeah, that doesn't seem to detract from it. It just seems to add to this kind of relentless train that we're all on. I, I can't get enough of about writer if i ever listen to it once i have to listen to it about six times i can know ne- i'm never happy just hearing it once this is where they first came across michael lindsay hogg wasn't it because yes. he filmed the promo um f- movies films shorts for this and rain at chiswick house um and uh, that, that's where they first met him and mm. thought all he'll do for um for let it be yes yeah, great choice what's your fourth one um, so let's, um, I'm trying to work out the, We've the had way paperback in which, writer, yeah, Eleanor Rigby and for no yeah, one. We've got two more. So I'm trying to work out. Okay. I'll, I'll go, I'll go for this. I think this was the last, um, I would say the last great moment of the four of them really playing together. Their last great all band performance, I think in terms of the four of the Beatles playing a song together. And again, this shows the darkness of the Beatles that nobody ever, or not many people, it, it's not something that that people like to see about the Beatles. I don't think it's not the lovable mock tops that they're, that they're shown. And I always think the song is underappreciated in that some people can't deal with the Beatles being a serious rock band. I think there's a certain type of rock fan that would say, Oh, well, of course, you know, Led Zeppelin were much heavier or, or this was much heavier and if another band had done this song I think that certain of the Cool Brigade would be holding it up as one of the best songs of all time but because the Beatles did this it's never taken as seriously as it should be in my view in some quarters um it's happiness is a warm gun and I think that it's such 
the lyrics are so dark. I'm a, I'm always a sucker for songs with about four different sections. And I love the journey that this goes on and the way that the music resolves itself. It comes from a, you know, a very dark time in history. Quite a lot of the White Album is sort of overshadowed by the Manson family, I think. Mm. But I, I still think that this is such a unexpectedly sort of last gasp from them towards the end of their career. There's so much to this song. I I just think it's I just delight in how dark it is, Terence. It has the most amazing lyrics, whether direct from John's imagination or mm. enabled through um, pharmaceutical means. It, the 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 touch of the velvet hand, mm. like a lizard on a window pane. I mean, it's a long way from "She Loves You," isn't it? Really, isn't it? I mean, it just goes to show how how sort of uh how how far they traveled like you say the i need a fix because i'm going downtown and you just think god i couldn't imagine that being in a hot day's night and no. that was like five years previously wasn't it exactly. it was it was you know they, they'd gone somewhere very different at that point but i i love it i remember the beatles for sale album um it, it was being brought home by my father who's a huge mm. beatles fan and eight days a week was a standout oh uh, yes uh, mainly written by Paul with suggestions from John, I believe. But I love the fade in, and there's so much going on. Mm. Yeah, the fade in's the... lovely, actually. That's really yes, it was, it was, I think it was the first time that had ever been used. And the, the limitations of the studio at Abbey Road at mm. that time, um, they still made, you know, the double tracking of the vocals and the harmonies are perfect. Is um, no deep significance. It's just a wonderful pop song. Two minutes and forty-four seconds of joy. That's that's yeah, eight that's absolutely. a week. Yeah, my, my final my final choice. Um, everything happened in such a short time frame. The summer of nineteen sixty-nine. The Beatles coming towards the closing stages. Yet they still produced probably the greatest album of all time. Um, oddly receiving mixed reviews at its release, mm. but now acknowledged for its beauty and depth. Um, there's something fiercely emotional about the medley on side two of Abbey Road. Mm. And as it's re- it reaches its conclusion with, and I'm lumping them together, Golden Slumbers, Carry That Way and The End, there you have a fitting closure for the, the greatest group of all time. I agree. I mean, I was a little bit frowny when you sent this through on the basis that I do think that's ever so slightly cheating that you have these songs in one. Then you could argue that much of that second half of the album was a cheat, really, and that they didn't have a lot of material open to them at that point. And in a way, I suppose it is a little bit Silk's Purse Sow's ear in that actually it was the long medley was an incredibly clever way of disguising the fact that they didn't have a lot of material at that point and they were sort of rummaging around a bit. Having said that, I agree with you. The emotions that it takes us through and it's almost a sort of a commentary on where they are really the 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 second half of abbey road is explaining the story of the beatles ending really and that literally the end and that that is why it's so moving like you say it's um moving when you see paul mccartney trying to sort of play it in a, in, and carry that weight i found that really interesting from get back that carry that weight was originally meant to be a sort of a comedy song for ringo mm. and it turned into something much more serious and much more profound very much so that's another great thing about the movie is that we also see previews of songs that later turn up on Abbey Road at their most sort of basic and another fascinating point of how they developed over the next well six months into you know the the foundations of of Mm. the terrific album that is Abbey Road and your last your final choice of uh, our joint top 10 wow and this is uh, this is my 
I, I don't want to say which of these is my favourite, but I this was the one that immediately shouted at me that I had to pick it. I think, and it's, it's in a way it was it's almost a sort of a, a, a an appropriate song to end uh, end this discussion with. I think, or in, in my five with, in that I just feel that it's 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 so there's so much to this song and. It's a day in the life, I'll tell you that. So, so I won't <laughs> keep guessing as to what it is. But again, there's a sort of a there's weird stories that, and and I think this is McCartney and Lennon at their best in kind of interacting. In that you've got Paul McCartney's kind of straight ahead tale of going into work and this sort of piano that's very restless and and this kind of straight ahead sort of song, and then you've got Lennon washing in with the uh, with the reading the news and the the idea that you know the the description of the of the deaths that's really the the, the Guinness Air death and it's and it's poignant and it's and it's intense and and everything about this I think is just it's so dramatic it's almost filmic in the way that it's it's describing and the incredible the, the incredible scenes of the orchestra playing at the end and the idea that, that I love those photos of them all in party hats where they kind of dress them all up to, and they're all in their finery to make it like this kind of amazing event and making them kind of slide up and down the scales and and the way that it sort of builds up at the end and it's it's so chaotic and then the final chord that is just that that moment where where it just is the release. I I, I often cry talking about that final mm. chord. I don't know why, but there's there's so much emotion in it. I think it's wonderful. It's one of the one of those Beatles songs that just took your breath away at the time and yeah. still does. Um, idiotically banned by the BBC, of course, until 1972. <laughs> um, of course. Quote: It could encourage a permissive attitude to drug taking. <laughs> for goodness sake oh dear oh dear thanks very much for uh, listening to this Beatles special absolutely yes hopefully even if you don't like the Beatles you might have still enjoyed it nonetheless yes thank you everyone talking of special 7pm on Sunday you can hear more of Juliet you can I mean sorry but anyway yes you can hear me from 7 to 9pm smooth sailing is my radio show lots of uh, calming uplifting things um, mixler.com forward slash Juliet hyphen Harris or just search in my name there's a little show reel on button on my page you can always catch up if you'd like and we're referring back to one of your top tracks to play us out absolutely and I, I now have just talked myself into thinking why didn't I pick Day in the Life but anyway mm. I could pick any of these and it would still be brilliant but yes to, to sort of show my point that I've been banging on about it and it's never it's never appreciated enough because uh, you, you never hear it anywhere I, I am going to pick this this is the finest all band performance that I think the Beatles ever put in uh, this is Happiness is a Warm Gun She's not a girl who misses much Oh yeah She's well acquainted with the touch of the velvet hand Like a lizard on a windowpane The man in the crowd with the multicolored mirrors on his hobnail boots Lying with his eyes while his hands are busy working overtime a soap impression of his wife Which he ate and donated to the National Trust I need a fix cause I'm 
that I'm left up to hound. I need a fix, cause I'm going down. Mother Superior jumped the gun. 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 Listening to a parish council production. Thanks, Mo. <laughs>